Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the second season of our Teachers in the Hall podcast. I'm John Zingali, and I enjoy listening to records. That's right, those round black things that spin around. Um, I really enjoy house projects and binge watching West Wing. And I'm Erin Lark, and I like the smell of the campfire, listening to Ray LaMontagne and playing Coob with a K. We are back now with another episode, just as our school year is about to start off today. Unfortunately, this episode uh, starts off with some sad news, cue just like the rest of 2020, with the passing of one of education's uh, greats, Sir Ken Robinson. He is world famous for his TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity? In fact, it is the most watched TED Talk of all time. Sir Ken was very inspiring to me um, because just as I was in grad school in 2013, he created the video, uh, the RSA animation video about changing education paradigms. And then with his TED talk about do schools kill creativity, um, both of them combined really inspired me to think about the shift of what we should be doing in school and what education should be. Um, he really had a sense of bringing arts and creativity into school, um, which as someone that loved experiential learning or, and was learning about project-based curriculums uh, in grad school really spoke to me. And so his videos and his inspirational words, words are very key to the type of classroom that I have created over these last seven plus years. He also absolutely inspired me through his videos and through his book, Out of Our Minds. I'm very into reading futurist thoughts when it comes to education. I'm a huge nerd about organizational change because I think that the things that we can't automate, the things that we can't have machinery do for us, will become what is most valuable and therefore what is most valuable for us to teach to our young learners. He stressed that creativity is applied imagination and that creativity is an edge, something that can't be automated and absolutely should be nourished. We also know someone else who has been a longtime fan of Sir Robinson, today's guest on our podcast, Catherine Leivik. She's joining us today to talk about the future in today's intense times in education. She is the integrated learning coach for ESD 112 here in Vancouver, Washington. She also had a 15-year career as a special education teacher prior to making the shift into educational technology, and we are lucky to have her here with us today. Catherine, I know you have an awesome story to share about the legend we just lost. I do. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I I did get to meet Sir Ken briefly a few years back, and I'm, I'm really glad I did. Um, I had been listening to his audiobooks. Um, for several years and reading his books. And I never got into audiobooks until I got into his audiobooks read by him. And then I suddenly like got why audiobooks were a thing. It's kind of funny that those were the first ones I liked. But um, he was, uh, his whole philosophy was very inclusive. Um, his kind of, he made the point that you're never going to know how some kids can shine if they don't get a chance to do things that are not deemed academically important uh, in our system. And I, I remember distinctly hearing him uh, talking about how 
learning and human growth are nonlinear. They're not a straight line. They're this organic kind of thing, like a tree. And I was like, this is my guy right here. This is, this is definitely my, my kind of philosophy. Um, a few years ago, he was a guest at a creative learning conference uh, at the ESD out in Kennewick. And uh, after his talk, we were able to get an autographed book and, you know, kind of line up and talk to him. And I couldn't believe I actually made it. You know, there was a limited number of people who were able to talk to him. And uh, I actually made it in the line and I was freaking out, like visibly. There is a picture of me talking to him that someone I just handed my phone to this random dude and he <laughs> took a picture and I you can just see me like clenching my hands together like I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not usually like easily flabbergasted by celebrity status, but I was just I just absolutely adored him. Um, and I had heard kind of some of the questions that people in line in front of me were asking and I was like, well, I got to ask something different. I can't ask the same stuff. And so because I am a presenter, I do professional development and uh, teach and train and work with adults and children all over the place. I wanted to ask him about his presentation skills, because if you've seen his TED Talks, you know what an incredibly engaging speaker he was and just funny, you know, but still managing to stay appropriate and on topic, which may be my less strong point <laughs> is uh and so i asked him you know what's your process when you're like figuring out how what you're gonna say what's and he said oh well i listened to my wife <laughs> that was his first response and i was like oh that's good you know that sounds like a good idea and he clarified that he said you know i have a point i want to make and i have a couple of points of interest along the way for getting there but i don't write it down um i just kind of talk about it. And if my wife says it's good, then that's the way I go. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting to hear um, how he had a, his creative process worked for figuring out what he was going to say, even though he didn't like outline it or anything. So as a presenter, as a teacher, I think uh, it's good to hear how really, really great presenters do their stuff. So that was a great moment for me. That's quite the story. And I love how his advice mirrors what he says about teaching in general, what you said about it not being a straight line. It's something organic. You have ideas of what's going to happen between A and Z, but how you get there might even be surprising to you. But yes, absolutely. Follow the advice of your best critics. I, I also know, loved that. Um, and you probably know this, but he was a, quote, special ed kid uh, when he was in school because he had gotten polio was out of school for a while. And when he came back, they're like, okay, you're in the special class. And uh, that it was just kind of how things were done. And he had some very interesting things to say about how that affected him and how the expectations that other people had of him and the limits that they kind of put on him, which he chose to bust out of. Uh, it was very, very interesting to go back and read some of his first writings and, and the element he talks about it a little bit. Excellent. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, that he says that because uh, now there is a TED Talk app out there where you can help like develop your own. And it's great for education as well. Um, so teachers out there, if you want your kids to work on presenting skills, the, the TED uh, education app is, is awesome. I'm blanking on the specific name for it. But one of the things that someone that's gone through and done that is they talk about these through lines and they talk about two different ways to, you know, do your talk. And one is, type everything out and practice it and practice it and practice it. And then the other one is, is put out your big bullet points. And then it's not necessarily 
talking, you know, just on the fly, but, you know, get your thoughts in your mind and practice your, those ideas and kind of just go with the flow and let your emotions guide you. Um, and so it's interesting to hear him say that as well. Um, so Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. You are officially our first guest on our podcast. Yay! I feel very special. Thank you. Um, and so as we think about Sir Robinson and his, uh, what he's done for education, what lesson do you think we can take with us into whatever lies ahead with not just this school year, but just education in general? I'm, you know, I, I think um, touching on that nonlinear idea of the fact that growth is not necessarily a straight line. It's the branches of a tree. It goes curly cue all over here and there in places you didn't expect it to take you. Um, I know that's not how our formal assessment systems work. Uh, and uh, to me, that's a problem. Uh, nobody probably cares what I think about that particular thing. But I, I really think as teachers and also as a parent, you know, looking at my students' progress through uh, academics, you know, I know he's a smart kid and I know that he's got skills and I know he's going to be all right. But sometimes it's hard not to go, why are you not here yet? And it's because he was branching off over here doing something else, which is equally important, even if it wasn't the thing being tested right now. And so for me, that's that's kind of the thing that stuck with me about Sir Ken that I think is going to that that flexibility and that need to know that things are not going to be linear. Um, I think administrators are going to have to remember that with how their teachers are doing. Teachers are going to have to remember with how their students are doing. <laughs> Parents are going to have to give themselves and everybody else a little slack. You know, it's just going to be. A very flexible year, I hope. Well, that's interesting when you talk about um, branching off and having that be something that's okay. I know you've been watching ed tech changing as schools shift into whatever their learning is looking like in COVID times, depending on what choices they had for methodology or what they have to do based on infection numbers. So when you're thinking about this branching, how does technology, in your mind, enable school systems to allow for this branching you know how might it free us up from some of the more linear practices that we've had to use for systems sake well that i, I think that's the power of tech technology ultimately and that's kind of why i wanted to send my career this direction after all those years in the classroom and i still miss being around kids um as although i am still around them sometimes but uh like i wanted to help people understand that these tools are there not as an extra thing on their plate, but that if they can get some facility with these tools and get comfortable using them, it allows them to teach in different ways and it allows their students to respond in different ways. So when you think of it from a kind of a universal design standpoint, um, we can remove a lot of barriers for students and for ourselves by using these tools. It's not that the tool itself is gonna fix everything, uh, it's not the important thing. The pedagogy is the important thing, but giving students the flexibility to respond in a different way can show you an entirely different side of a student that you didn't even maybe know was there. And I've watched it happen so many times, um, and especially with students who have special needs. Uh, I just I'm a big believer in, you know, giving people those choices. And that's that's why I think technology is going to help us, even though it's also frustrating the heck out of everybody right now. 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so one of the things we've kind of known each other for a couple of years on and off um, through some of these different tech conferences and, and things, Catherine, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of when we go to some of those, there's lots of teachers out there that were seeking out, you know, different teaching techniques and, and technology and stuff like that. But right now, teachers no longer have that option to remain on the sidelines, right? And just say, well, I'm not going to bring technology into my classroom, right? They, they can't uh, remain Luddites. And so what is, like, how will this affect things? Because one of the things that is, like, will, are they just going to, like, be so overwhelmed where they're just going to bring, like, worksheets and stuff into the digital world and not necessarily change teaching practices? Or are they willing to, like, upend their teaching practices? I'm curious to see what you think about it. Well, just based on, you know, I'm I'm kind of a nexus of panic in some ways. <laughs> I'm getting, you know, emails from all over our region and all over our state with my involvement in our statewide uh, AESD learning management systems project. And so I'm hearing a lot, you know, kind of uh, the whole gamut of <laughs> responses to this. And, you know, it's it's just a personality thing. Some people's first response is going to be, cool, I get to 10x this bad boy and do some new stuff, right? And some people are going to be like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And I'm going to clamp down and get really controlling. And how do I control all these things? And so I'm gently redirecting people to think about it in a different way. And and I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be personality-based. I think as some of the later adopters see people doing cool new stuff, they will relax and do it a bit. And I think also after we've had a few weeks of uh, remote teaching and nothing is on total fire, like not actual literal meteors falling out of the sky, hopefully, um, people will <laughs> chill out a little bit. But yeah, it's, I, I think, and I have seen, I honestly have, because I, and I think part of this, I know that administrators are doing the best they can right now too. But I think some administrators um, don't really know how to help their teachers. And so they're like, you know, encouraging people to just bring their what they did last year in their physical classroom into the digital space. And we know that's not always going to translate. Um, So I think there will be some missteps at the beginning. I also do tend to think, though, that the kids are going to be all right. Like, I I don't want to engage at any pearl clutching about, oh, the children, you know, we're all going to have some social emotional things to deal with after going through this <laughs> pandemic and the other fun of this particular year in, in time. But I think everyone's going to be okay. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, I've seen a range of responses. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And I've noticed that some districts in our area and across the globe, are choosing to prescribe the learning almost down yeah. to the minute or the letter in order to get not only um, all teachers on a level, but also to get closer to equity for students, mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that all students are getting a similar experience. What do you think about that choice? I uh, Well, I have a hard time personally with that because I got a problem with authority. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> and, you know, um, I I would have a very difficult time. I've, I remember the first time I was in, you know, college with my first pedagogy class back in 1992. <laughs> it was a very long time ago, 1993 or 94. And uh, 
and they gave me, I don't think it must have been Distar, some kind of really scripted reading program. And I was like, oh my God, I would if I had to do this every day. And some people feel that way. Other people are going to feel comforted. I, I'm actually, you know, kind of coming from my background as a special ed teacher for a long time. Um, I, I feel like giving people a structure is always great. Hand that structure out, give them as much scaffolding as you can for a couple of weeks. But if you're going to punish people or police them for not sticking exactly to it, I feel like that's where the problems could come in. And I don't think it contributes to equity to be super rigid about it. Mm -hmm. Although I do want, I mean, I'm very concerned about that as well. The equity thing is huge. So to go along with that, just a follow up question. Do you think all of this was too rushed? And maybe that's got an obvious <laughs> answer. All of, uh, yes. I mean, I, it, does anybody feel it wasn't? I, I mean, we, we did have to make that really massive pivot in uh, March where it was like two days ago we had school and now everybody's home and what are we going to do? And we all felt the craziness of that. Um, and I think, you know, I watched my son's teacher rise to the occasion. She was not a particularly techie person, but boy, she tried and it wasn't great the first couple of weeks, but I could tell that she was just open and flexible. And as a parent, I felt like that's what I wanted to see. So, and it got way, way better. You know, she learned some stuff. She changed some stuff. She went on with it. Um, I do believe that we have had some months in the interim that we could have maybe concentrated a little more on what distance learning would look like instead of really hoping that we would all be back. <laughs> I wish that we had made a little bit more deliberate preparations in some cases, but, um, you know, here we are and school's going to happen one way or the other. <laughs> um, so having said all that, um, you know, thinking back to what you just mentioned with your teacher, like getting better at different things and really, you know, working at it, um, like what, are there some good things that can come out of all of this? Like, could a, a, a shift in education from this rigid, we're going to create, um, you know, kids in rows and we're just creating workers for uh, our economy, you know, can education change? And like, is that a good thing or is, is that a bad thing? Or should, should education, you know, remain where it was? I, you know, it, it's always interesting interesting to hear these different, you know, points of what education could be and, you know, what good do you think can come out of this? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I hope so. Uh, I look at, you know, today we got to meet my son's teacher, which was cool. And uh, she, she said some stuff that made me really happy. She's like, yeah, we're just spending the first couple of weeks getting to know each other. Every, you know, we're going to be fine and we're going to just flex and change. And I was like, oh, thank God, you know, I'm not hearing the, you know, I assure you this will be exactly the same as if your kid was in the classroom, because that's not happening, you know. <laughs> so I, I do think that that, like, again, without, without seeping into the kind of uh, domain of toxic positivity, because I like to look for a lesson in any crappy thing that is happening to me. <laughs> that's what I do to cope. I know not everybody is like me. Um, but I, I mean, I do think we do have the opportunity to really, you know, blow it up and, and education needs to be blown up. Frankly, <laughs> I love public education. I'm a firm believer that it's the foundation of democracy. I have been an activist for it and involved in it career wise since I was in my early twenties. 
And uh, I, I love public schools. I'm not going to badmouth public schools, but it's, it's time for a change. And if this is what triggers it, great. Um, in the meantime, it's going to be real hard. <laughs> a, a lot of change is hard. Um, and I do hope that, you know, kind of hearkening back to that idea of that the cool thing we have now that we wouldn't have had if this had happened in 1985 uh, is the technology that really can help to equalize um, a little bit. It's There's also, you know, definitely equity problems with technology itself at this point. But I think it also offers us some opportunities if we handle it correctly to find ways to engage students that might not otherwise be engaged. You're, you're yeah. also a parent. So how does that flavor your thoughts when you're I mean, you're working on things that are at state level that are crossing, you know, all kinds of district boundaries and, and working to support things all over the state. I'm wondering how being a parent, watching it happen at your own kitchen table infuses what you do. <laughs> well, yeah, and it is interesting when you work at a statewide level to see the disparity that exists across, you know, not just our region, but across the whole state. And it's uh, it's hard to know where to start with that. And there's probably, hopefully, people at a much higher pay grade than mine who are helping work on that. But um as a parent, you know, my, my kid has some attention problems. And so he also is kind of introverted and we have a lot of technology in the house and we're all kind of introverted nerds here. So like he, it's working for him. Like he's happy. We stay home. We look at the screens. We're, you know, we're cool. Um, but I also have noticed some things, uh, you know, that kind of as a parent and as a special educator, like every zoom meeting he was on last year, he was on the floor flopping around, uh, sitting on his on my foam roller and like flailing about and waving his arms. He had his camera off because he knew he didn't want to be a distraction. Um, he was not told he had to have his camera on. Uh, I'll just interject that for what it's worth. And I think that was a good thing. Um, but I, I, you know, I think about, oh, I want to make sure he has a good workspace and, you know, I'm going to have a nice desk for him and a monitor that, you know, and I can I'm privilege to be able to provide that, which I know not everyone is. But also, I'm not going to make him sit in front of that desk because he's moving his body in ways that are helping him stay engaged. And, uh, you know, if you observe that as a parent, it's, you know, hard not to kind of take that perspective back into your own classroom, I would hope and say, you know, sometimes kids need this, whatever the setting. Mm -hmm. I hope that answered the question. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to, before we move on to the next one, I think th that equity piece is important too, because I know I've been floating around uh, the Twitterverse and stuff recently. And, oh, yeah. you know, I've seen some pictures of these kids sitting outside Taco Bell to get the internet, you know, and oh. the thing is, yes. you know, I, I, one of the things I hope that comes out of this, I hope policymakers say, look, internet is a utility. It needs to be treated Absolutely. like electricity and water and gas. And everyone needs access to it at some basic level. Maybe everyone doesn't get like 5G or whatever, but like there's so many barriers for people in so many different, for so many different reasons, not just rural versus urban, but their socioeconomic status and stuff like that. And just that pains every fiber of my being because it's like, oh, well, kids have, kids have the device. How come they don't have internet? It's like, maybe the district was working hard at getting the kids the device. But, you know, some kids slip through the cracks as far as, you know, Internet or maybe just there are two other kids at home that are using the Internet and the bandwidth mm -hmm. you know, function and stuff. And I think 
we just need to be grateful with this. But also, like, I, that's one of my big hopes that the good to come out of this is I think um, I'm hoping that the Internet can become more uh, equitable. Just I just had to throw that in because I, I can't it pains me every time I see stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I will say that I also do a lot of work with the tech directors in our region. So I work with the IT side of things quite a bit. And one of the main topics of conversation since March, and it's not like it didn't get brought up before, but since our sudden change in, in education has been, what are you all doing about getting hotspots to kids or getting internet? Because we work with a lot of rural and remote districts or, you know, small towns. They don't, not everybody has broadband. Um, and they are talking constantly about that. It's weighing heavily on their minds. And so I'm, I'm glad uh, to see they're, they're sharing solutions. They're solving problems together and collaborating um, to, you know, see if they can solve this huge problem, which honestly, this is what we want to teach our kids to do. So if nothing else comes out of this, but uh, kids seeing adults modeling that, there's a there's a good thing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to shift the way they think about things when they're adults and they're policymakers, right? Like it's, it's yeah. like it done right now, I bet my hope is they're going to take that on and, you know, they're going to make some changes based off of their life experiences. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too, is what's advice for brand new teachers. But I'm yeah. going to be out that is because so many people say it's like, Oh, well, whatever it is, is we're automatically in our first year of teaching. I, I don't necessarily personally prescribe to that because I think, there's a lot of teachers out there that that can adapt to this and have to do everything. But um, you know, if you were a brand new teacher starting out, like, what would be some advice to be? And then, like, about that, just everyone, every all teachers, I should say. That's that's interesting. I I think, I mean, thinking back to a jillion years ago when I was a new teacher, the hardest thing was that you just didn't know what was coming at you any given day, <laughs> and that's the nature of teaching. You get um, you learn to flow with that a little bit, or you're not going to stay in the profession, I think. But, um, you know, I, I did some work with pre-service teachers over the last couple of years in a, a couple of different contexts. And I think there is a misconception, especially with teachers who are new to the profession, because it's their first career, they're young. People go, oh, these young folks, they know all about the technology. That's not true. Okay, first of all. And um, second of all, some of our career shifting teachers who are older, um, know more about technology than the younger folks. It's, I think it is a matter of flexibility. And that is uh, what I have been advising newer teachers or just teachers who are lost in general to do is find a way, get really good at PLC, find your professional learning community, find a way to connect with people who can help you with ideas for what you need. And I get more interesting ideas from Twitter on any given day than just about anywhere else which I never would have believed that a couple of years ago. Same, same here. Well, so it's like when you go to conferences too, like I get some out of like, there's, there's usually some people I want to go see in presentations. Right. But I love the, just the peer to peer connection at conferences. That's where I get some of the biggest, you know, inspirations and stuff like that. Absolutely. Or cool. yeah, if you could have a magic eight ball, and <laughs> what would you want it to say or predict for everyone? So 
In well, other words, what's your, what's your, if we gave you all the wishes in the world, what would you wish for this time? Well, I, I'm going to give you the bad news. I just shook my magic eight ball and it said, don't count on it. So I don't know how this is going to go, but <laughs> what, what I want is, um, I want the magic wand of this increasing um, inclusivity and flexibility in people's thinking about how they can teach stuff. That um, what we're actually doing is creating expert learners where you're teaching students to think, to critically think, to research and find information and then actually evaluate whether it's worth a darn or not. Um, and if, if we can focus on giving kids those skills and then give them room to kind of innovate within that, some super fun things happen. I know you have both seen a lot of that because that's both how you, how both of you roll. Um, but I think there are some teachers who have, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage to kind of let go and let kids do some stuff and fail and to model failure for them in a way that is not terrifying. <laughs> so, you know, I would hope that people would just kind of lean into that. But um, if I really have the magic wand, what I'm going to do is make sure that um, this allows our special ed kids to be more included in technology activities instead of less, and that we don't forget about computer science and uh, computational thinking, because that can be um, infused into every part of our curriculum in ways that are super fun <laughs> without a lot of, you don't necessarily have to have a lot of gadgets to do it, but that's kind of one of my other things uh, is teaching people to integrate those ideas and concepts in across the subject areas. And so I would hope that we would continue doing that, even though um, I think the temptation is to go back to the basics and uh, we have to define what basics really are. Yeah, well, very well said. Um, I, I think, it, it could definitely push those things forward. Um, and just, I think one of the things we also need to keep in mind here is, um, you know, we're talking about distance learning because of COVID-19 and the uh, pandemic that is currently going on. But um, our society is also going over, going through what I believe is a major inflection point in our country's history. Mm -hmm. um, so not only are these kids dealing with COVID and everything that comes with that from possible getting sick themselves or family members or jobs being lost in the economy and all of that stuff and not being able to see their friends how they want to. And, you know, it's one of those things where you go back to school and like, hey, you get to see your friends and it's so much fun. But, you know, we're also currently dealing with major social injustice and upheaval, um, you know, in our headlines last week. Um, you know, we've seen athletes take a stand on things um, before at the Olympics and Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson has become an activist and people have been activists before, but I have never in my life seen the um, amount of solidarity between major sports like I did this last week where, you know, entire playoff games were canceled and postponed because of uh, what's happening in Wisconsin. And, you know, you watch, I watched the baseball team, you know, like walk on the field, they stood in silence for Jackie Robinson and then, you know, laid a black lives matter shirt on home plate and then just walked off. Um, these, and now the NBA is turning every, I believe every arena into a polling place as part of their solution to try to get, you know, a safe space for people to vote um, in the fall. And, um, you know, these athletes are 
they're not just shutting up and dribbling. They're they're making headway with what something that they believe in, and um, that's also going to impact our kids um, across the board. And so that's just something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I think that lives are being affected in small and big ways, which is different and not something maybe they've experienced before in their lifetimes, even for myself in my lifetime. I'm thinking about how everything from school supply lists that now have things like PPE and masks on them, I never thought that would happen, to extremely big ways, knowing the economic ramifications, uh, the financial heartbreak that has started and will continue to do so as you know all of our systems try to keep up with the need that is happening as a result of these changes. And our school systems are working as hard as they can to outpace these challenges and support families. All of that to say that we know education is changing because society is changing in profound ways. So, you know, that's a that's a big a big note to hold in your heart every night as an educator. And so, yeah. Catherine, I'm just wondering in your mind, what changes do you hope we see as a result of this? What do you want a student to leave this school year with? From the for the students, I hope what this does is, in some ways, inspire them. Uh, which like sounds really trite and weird, like, yay, I'm inspired by all the nasty stuff that is going down <laughs> currently in the world. Um, but I, what I mean is, I think, you know, and going back to kind of John's, you know, analogy with the sports teams, they're doing stuff that might have been or some people might consider to be outside of their sphere, but they're using their influence in a way that they feel like ethically you know, important. And I, one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, people are passing around videos. We're all online. We're on social media, you know, passing the time because we're not out, you know, doing stuff. And so we're seeing uh, all these videos that go viral. And a lot of them are of like kids doing stuff. I don't, I, I think when I think about the things I thought I could accomplish as a kid, as opposed to what I'm going to do when I grow up, um, and then I think about how my child is experiencing what kids can do. He's getting exposed to kids who have fewer limits in some ways. Like, it's not that, well, I can't do anything. I'm just a kid. It's, oh, I saw a video about a kid who started um, a fundraiser for Black Lives Matter or I, a kid who um, feeds the homeless every day, uh, a kid who, you know, just that that awesome uh, young gal who is doing a drum off with Dave Grohl. I'm like, this is great. Like kids can do big, big things now. And I would hope that students would embrace that part of it. Um, but I think in order to really drive that lesson home, we are going to have to, as educators, release some constraints. And one of the most important things that I learned as a special educator was that if I put a limit on a kid, if I looked at a kid, and I thought, oh, they can they can only do this much and no more. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I figured that out pretty early on, fortunately, because when I figured out that I was doing that to kids, I felt horrible. And I did not want to do it again. And I found that you could find a way to help kids rise to the occasion and take on responsibility um, without, you know, pressuring them to, to, to be frustrated, you know, about stuff. I think there's a way you can not limit kids and say, why couldn't you do that? 
And I'm hoping that that's kind of what comes out of this because we're all seeing so many things changing. Um, I don't think our kids today are going to feel as limited in what is possible as maybe we did growing up. And by we, I mean you two and me, even though you are a lot younger than I am. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you, Catherine, for joining us, for sharing your insight. Um, for being our first guest and for all the work that you do on behalf of the teachers of our state of Washington and all the ideas that are shared well beyond those borders. And we really, really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Well, our audience, thank you also for listening to us. If you like what you heard and you have a topic we should discuss or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Teachers in Hall or Instagram at the same. You can also email us at teachersinthehall at gmail.com. And as always, a big thank you to Son of Starkiller, also known as Matthew Zingali, for our music. And until next time, I'm Erin. And I'm John. We will be back next month to talk about some projects we've planned, uh, and we're going to see how the building closures affect our practices. Until then, keep those conversations going.